Dr. Bate, thank you for appearing here. Um, I'm going to ask you to affirm uh, that you intend to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Thank you. Thank you. Good afternoon, Dr. Bate. Good afternoon. Um, I'm one of the uh, Atlantic Council on the on the NCI team. So, um, can you just very briefly walk us through your uh, credentials? Okay, I'm a retired dentist, uh, graduated with a Bachelor of Science in Chemistry from the University of Western Ontario in 1986 and in dentistry, Doctor of uh, Dental Surgery in 1991. I practiced privately in Concordia, Ontario from 1991 to 2013. I've since retired due to injuries in my shoulders and have moved to Newfoundland uh, in 2017. And I understand that your, um, your university education was heavily uh, weighted in the math direction, is that right? Yes, in fact, I, I didn't pursue a, uh, a degree in mathematics, but I took all of my elective courses while pursuing a BSc in chemistry in math and physics. And you have a special interest in statistics and data analysis. I do, yes. I've got a keen interest in it. Do you apply that uh, that interest on a number of areas? Yes. Um, for many years, I, I was doing stock analyses personally, and I've always been interested in sports analysis. But the last few years, since um, uh, the breakthrough cases, when they occurred, piqued my curiosity because being in the medical field, I always believed that vaccines would stop transmission to, to a great degree, if not, you know, some degree. But uh, when I started hearing about breakthrough cases, I did send a, an email to our health officer, uh, Dr. John Hagee, uh, outlining my concerns because I knew people were saying, why am I getting this disease? I got vaccinated and I received a response uh, basically saying that the government was tracking breakthrough cases, but they weren't going to be uh, producing any evidence or any um, numbers for the population, but surveillance was, national surveillance was being done, which kind of shocked me. You had an opportunity to apply your math skills and data analysis skills to two discrete areas that we want to talk about today. Sure. The first being the Pfizer document, the, the document released by Pfizer, or I, I suppose more accurately released by the Department of uh, the FDA after that order by the judge in January of 2022. Is that right? Correct. Okay. And ultimately that document uh, purports to come from Pfizer. Is that right? Yes. What is that document? I think we have a copy of it to put up. What yeah, is it's that the adverse document? events that uh, Dr. McCullough referred to, uh, referenced earlier. And um, I pulled this up uh, last year, looked at it and was rather shocked to say the least. Um, a lot of it was redacted at the time. It got re-released a month later. So when, when I went to look at it again, I couldn't find it because it was originally released on March 1st, then they moved it to April 1st, so it got harder to find. But when I did, this is what I discovered, and I must say um, there were about 42,000 participants in their clinical trials. They were monitored from December 14th to the end of February of, I guess, 2019 to 2020, and 42,086 had side effects, numbering nearly 160,000 side effects, so the average person had almost four they reported. Interestingly, interestingly enough, out of the 42,000 individuals, as Dr. McCullough referenced, 1,223 resulted in fatal results. Um, 9,400, the outcomes were unknown, which is astonishing. Well, what does that mean, unknown? Or what, what would you think they that means? Well, <laughs> they didn't report. And then my personal understanding is people that die don't report. But I can't say they all died, but there is uh, 
how they got lost in the system, I don't know. Further to that point, if I can just move to the next slide, this is um, in the same report. They, they spoke of the pregnancies that were involved, that the mothers that they, they followed, there were 270 pregnancies. In the end, they only were able to, uh, 238, they did not follow. They got lost. 32, they followed. Only one had a normal outcome of a live birth. I'll move on. Um, they further, in this um, report, they categorized by um, physiological, um, or I guess, uh, what was the cause, basically. So they broke them down into cardiovascular, neurological, the different possibilities, categories of uh, this. And uh, just to show you one here for cardiovascular, they state in the relevant event outcomes, fatal was 136. And the conclusion, which is too small for me to read here, but it does, I believe it says, uh, the cumulative data shows, indicates no uh, safety concerns and surveillance will continue. And oh, the bottom of that slide Yeah, it's, it's up there. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a very small, I'm afraid. Yes, but, conclusion, uh, this cumulative case review does not raise new safety concerns. Surveillance will continue. Correct. And just to illustrate that that was not an isolated incident, the very next one is people that got COVID, um, either through transmission or possibly from the vaccines. The same thing happened here, 136 fatal. Conclusion, this cumulative case review does not raise new safety issues. Surveillance will continue. So that's Pfizer's own data that they tried to hide for 75 years. I think I know why. When you, when you say tried to hide for 75 years, can you just tell us what you mean by that? Well, they, they were asked to, um, to report and, and give their data, and they, um, they refused to. So uh, there was a doctor in the States who, uh, um, I can't think of his name offhand, but he had to spend a lot of time and money to go to the Supreme Court in various jurisdictions to get that, actually get a judge to finally say, yes, you need to release that data. Okay, what's the next page that we're so looking at here? We're looking now at Canada. So this would be... Um, okay, our, so sorry, we're moving on from the Pfizer yeah, trial. Yeah, so I'm just looking at uh, safety issues here in Canada. So that's just from the manufacturer. In Canada, it was reported January 8th of 2021. So it was the second week of reporting. This is what they reported, that there had been 10 serious adverse events reported and 338,423 doses administered for an overall incidence of 0.003% who were serious. And now I move to the next one. So as time went on, they made provision to update the data as time went on to, as more events occurred, they could reestablish uh, re what the numbers were from previous reports. And down the road, this would be um, December 9th, 2022, that very week that they'd reported previously, suddenly had 31 serious outcomes and 256,000 doses were no longer in arms. They only had 82,512 doses administered. So sorry, what, your point, what is the contrast that you're pointing out here? Well, basically, they, after a year and 44 weeks, they decided to then update the data. And they've been doing it progressively throughout the time. But at that point in time, the, numbers, the number of adverse events, serious adverse events tripled, and the number of doses that they claimed given were given went down by a factor of four. So they tripled the serious adverse events, one quartered the number of doses given, 12-fold decrease or increase in the serious adverse events were actually observed in, early on in the uh, vaccination program. Where did you obtain this data? This is all from uh, healthinfobase.canada.ca. If you look for safety, uh, vaccination safety data, it's all there. Is this still there? 
I'm not sure. I, I actually got this from a third party who uh, sent this to me. I had some of this data, and um, she sent this to me in an email just a few days ago. So I'm a little not 100% on uh, whether it's still accessible. I'm not okay. sure. I think it is, but um, again, it gets changed all the time. So um, really noteworthy. If I can just move on to the next here, is this is a slide showing the the numbers in pink and the yellow outline are what the data was for these first six reports of 2021 and the ones that are just in the in the purple are what they had reported so you can see that there's the 338,000 uh, original doses and 10 adverse events became 31 and 82,000 and as time goes on the doses became more um, true or accurate but you can see even in, in May of 2021 where they had originally reported 1,262 serious adverse events it was actually 2,234 are now being attributed to that time frame. What, what, what if anything, do you make of that? Um, well, I, I, if I can just continue, okay, I, I, sure. there's an explanation uh, forthwith. So um, basically back early on, so this is April 15th, 2022, um, as the numbers started climbing, uh, they had 128 Guillain-Barre syndrome attributed uh, side effects and myocarditis, pericarditis were 2044. And this, again, is from a third party. I didn't write the red things in here, so you can try to ignore those. But um, then in May of 2022, they reclassified these based on the Brighton Collaboration Index. And they, they grade these things in different uh, from levels one to four. And so suddenly they have two classifications for each of these. And then they decided later on in May to go back to one. And they dismissed 100 and 20 Guillain-Barre syndromes and a thousand myocarditis pericarditis were then no longer attributed on this. So I believe as they went back and increased the numbers from the previous ones that were not reported, they then removed these so that the numbers had a the total number just continually went up just a little bit week to week. A bit of sleight of hand, I'd say. So this, I'm gonna move on to effectiveness now. I just wanna go through a series of these just to show, these are screenshots that I took from the same healthinfobase.canada.ca. Uh, you may be familiar with these. They used to categorize these as such, unvaccinated, cases not yet protected, partially vaccinated, fully vaccinated, and fully vaccinated with an initial, additional dose. So I've got this from May 8th, 2022. I then got June 5th, 2022. July 3rd, July 31st, August 28th, and September 25th. Now. In each of these um, publications, Sorry, are we going to go back and look at those, and you're going to walk us through? I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I've got all the data on a hand thing I did, right? So those okay. numbers are all they're all here, but I'm going to summarize them shortly. Okay. So, for instance, May 9th to June 5th, unvaccinated cases were four times more likely to be hospitalized and five times more likely to die from their illness, which I would only assume would be per case, like based on a percentage of cases compared to fully vaccinated cases. During the same four-week period, unvaccinated cases were four times more likely to be hospitalized, six times more likely to die from their illness compared to cases fully vaccinated with one or more additional doses. So I'm just gonna go quickly through these. They're the same for, there's five of these. And again, these are only here because I screenshotted them. That data is no longer there. There's a few of them that are there, but if you go back, they only go back to April of 2022 and half of the dates, if not more, have no data whatsoever. In fact, if you go back to the very first one, it's actually, I think it's uh, April 10th or something. If you click on that one, it has the September 25th of this, of the, in the future data on it. It's, it's absolutely nonsensical. 
But I'd really like to highlight one here. It's August 1st, August 28th. These are some pretty big numbers. They claim that unvaccinated cases were five times more likely to be hospitalized and seven times more likely to die from their illness compared to cases with a completed primary vaccine series. During the same four-week period, unvaccinated cases were seven times more likely to be hospitalized and eight times more likely to die from their illness compared to cases with a completed primary vaccine series and one or more additional doses. So I did, this is my work. I, um, I'm old school. My dad taught me early in my life that if I wanted to remember things, you write it down. You don't just look at a screen or type it in. It doesn't stay. So this I've been doing for a couple of years now. I've got five books of this graph paper that I've been doing analysis of various things COVID related on. This is a summary of those numbers for everything that they, that I showed you there. And hospitalization rates are given and death rates for the periods. I really want to isolate on this. August data, and it, the last three um, reports are very, I'd say, damning to the vaccinated. Um, I'm gonna look at death rates individually here. For July 3rd to the 31st, the death rate in the unvaccinated was 1.09%. In the fully vaccinated, plus one dose, it was 0.94. With two doses, it was 1.95, and for those with any vaccinations whatsoever are fully vaccinated above, they stopped doing the partially ones, 1.23%. So now in August, these numbers become a little more scary. The unvaccinated is 1.36% of cases resulted in death. The fully vaccinated with boosters, 1.90. They claimed that it was eight, you're eight times more likely to die if you're unvaccinated from your case than if you'd had a booster dose or more. And in fact, those people were dying at about a 40% higher rate, not lower by eight factors, higher by 40%. And the same holds true in the September data as well. I just want to point out quickly, I do believe I have it here. It's not the one I want to have. right here is, this is the Worldometers uh, yesterday's data. I believe the number of deaths attributed in Canada so far is 51,000 some odd out of slightly over 4 million cases reported for an overall mortality rate of 1.12%. So 1.12%, if we look at the fully vaccinated with one or more doses and two or more doses, those numbers for the last two months are basically double what they've been for the entire duration of the pandemic with a less uh, mortality variant in play, apparently. These are rates, not numbers. So how, how is it that twice as many people that are diagnosed are dying than throughout the entire pandemic? is what I can't quite comprehend, but. Okay. Do you, does that conclude your prepared Not quite, statements? no. Okay. I just want to um, point this out as well. So these are basically the same things I looked at. What they had claimed, the percentage or the, the factor of hospitalization and, and deaths were compared to what the actual numbers that they published in the same report actually were. And, um, you can see from the bottom three here, basically hospitalization rates were lower in the unvaccinated, and the death rates in particular were much lower in the unvaccinated population than those receiving fully vaccinated plus one or plus two booster doses. Now, further to uh, this, I want to talk a little bit about the uh, the vaccination coverage that's been reported, and this is the most up-to-date, this is from Canada.ca, 
And I just want to look at the one here saying total population that has received at least one dose is stated at 80.7%. And then if we go to the, this, the same place you go to to access this, if you click on a different button, you can get the health info based number. And this one says at least one dose, 83.4%. And that is a 3% of the population difference. I mean, it's it's the same people doing the data, I believe. Somehow they report two different numbers. Just a little, it boggles my mind a little bit to, uh, to quote John Campbell on that. But uh, I do find that astonishing that the same people report different numbers from the same web page. And I just want to quickly point out from the, the previous speaker, and I thank her for her uh, diligent work. I think it's noteworthy when we look at respiratory illnesses that result in all these problems and, and lockdowns and mandates and so forth that if we look historically, uh, and this is hard to find, I looked it up just uh, a couple months ago and I thought last night, because I'm a fast talker, I might be able to slip this in too, but uh, I looked at data for the influenza virus and in the USA in 2019-2020, there were 36 million cases confirmed. And in 2020-2021 flu season, there's no data. They said it was too, too little to find. And I did find one reference, and the number was 1,675. This represents a 99.995% reduction in influenza cases confirmed in the United States. Infer what you will. In Canada, those numbers went from 55,379 to 69 the following year. <laughs> and I know that... Uh, Say what you like. It seems something may have gotten renamed, but at the end of the day, there were more COVID cases reported than flu cases previously. So how did that happen? I'd like to point out one thing. With my bit of a mathematical mind, I looked into the um, cycle thresholds that were being run on PCR tests in Newfoundland and Labrador, where I'm from. They were running at 45. Now, I know Dr. Kerry Mullis, who developed the PCR test, stated that anything above about 26 cycle thresholds was meaningless because there was too many false positives. To put it into perspective, I did a little math, and if you have a loony in your hand, your loony is worth $1. And if you ran that at 45 cycle thresholds, which is to multiply it by 245 times, it's an effort of, ma of magnification, it comes out to over $31 trillion. To put that into a more visual uh, perspective, that one loony weighs seven grams. And if you took seven grams and multiply that by 245 times, you'd have the mass of enough Titanics to lay end to end for 1,200 kilometers. So if you want to find, you want to bump up some numbers, run 45 cycle thresholds, no problem. Done. There's one, thank you. There's one more comment I'd like to make in Newfoundland and Labrador. They, they've been doing pie charts. Uh, they've stopped. I'll, I'll, everyone I've talked to pointed out their discrepancies have ceased to report vaccination status data. So, uh, but in Newfoundland and Labrador, all told, I think we've had three or 400 deaths. I haven't looked at it recently. They haven't reported it recently, so I don't know. But I know that between May 11th and June 8th of 2022, there were 11 deaths reported, and they used to do daily updates and say how many cases were from which area, which age groups, and so forth. They noted in that release on June 8th of 2022 
that of the 11 deaths, very sadly and tragically, one had occurred, our first death in the under 20 age group, and at the same time, another one was reported in the 30 to 39 age group. And to, to, to this date, they are still the only two under the age of 40. All 11 deaths that week were fully vaccinated. So not a single unvaccinated person under the age of 40 has died in Newfoundland and Labrador from, attributed to COVID during the entire pandemic. Thank you very much for your presentation, Dr. Bate. I'll defer to the commissioners for questions. Well, thank you for your presentation. I mean, I've seen some analysis of uh, uh, of the government website in terms of the number that we're coming up with with respect to the uh, likelihood of getting hospitalized or die. And uh, uh, I'd like you to comment on what kind of uh, data representation you could actually uh, come up with in order to generate these kinds of conclusion, given that the number you've calculated are completely uh, different. Well, I'm, it's speculation. Uh, I don't want to say they're lying necessarily, but it seems to be a form of coercion that um, if you don't get the vaccine, you're probably going to die. And we've seen it through the media throughout, uh, especially in the States. You know, if you don't get it, it's going to be a painful, terrible winter and all of this sort of thing. So um, I also know personally that in Newfoundland and Labrador, they've reported for almost a year now that 100% of the over 70 population is fully vaccinated. Um, personally, I know about 20 people in two um, small towns totaling about 14,000 people, Glovertown and, and uh, Gander. I have a list of 21 people over the age of 70 that are unvaccinated. And for this to be true, for the 100% to be not 99.9, .9, there could only be 31 in the whole province. All right. Thank you. Thank you very much. Welcome. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? I sure do. Thank you. Yes. My name is Vonnie Allen. I was born and raised in Amherst, Nova Scotia. I left Amherst and moved to Moncton, New Brunswick, only long enough to get my RN diploma and begin my nursing career. In April of 1987, I moved back to Amherst with my then husband and began working at Highland View Regional Hospital. In February of 88, upon returning from my two and a half month maternity leave, I was given casual employment on the maternity unit. Little did I know that maternity is where I was meant to be 
and that I would develop a passion for it that would last almost 34 years until I was unceremoniously put on unpaid leave on December the 1st, 2021 for standing up for my rights and declining to take an experimental medication. I am... I am the proud mother of four adult children and the blessed nanny of three little boys. Only one of my children has been awake and supportive of me throughout this three-year ordeal. Unfortunately, the oldest three have believed the mainstream media and the government and have been made unreasonably fearful like so many others. Two of them have forbidden me to speak of anything related to COVID and the mandates. I have been muzzled and disallowed to talk of the impacts that the COVID mandates have had on my life. The loss of my career, the loss of my income, the loss of respect from much of my community, the refusal of EI to give back any of what I paid in for over 35 years, the seven months I lived with no income except what I could borrow from friends and family, and an RRSP I was forced to cash in, the inability to step foot in my local bowling alley for five months, a place I called my second home for over 40 years, and the denial of entrance to my own local hospital when my youngest daughter had a grand mal seizure last year and had to be rushed in by ambulance. She didn't know her own name. She couldn't speak. She was totally incapable of advocating for herself. She was terrified. And I, her mother, a formerly respected veteran nurse of that very hospital, a hero just two years earlier, was not allowed past the front door because I was not vaccinated with an unproven experimental drug. I was married to my children's father for 29 years, spent 36 and a half years with him total. He was emotionally abusive, an angry man, and he worked when he felt like it. So for all but two years of our marriage, I was the major breadwinner. For two years, he worked up north in Baker Lake, Nunavut, and made great money. But then he quit and felt that because he had missed so much while he'd spent many months away, he was entitled to a year off. So the bills piled up. I tell you this because for my entire marriage, I lived paycheck to paycheck, robbing Peter to pay Paul. Which credit card should I put money toward this pay? When I left him in 2016, I took on all of our accumulated debt, $55,000, in return for him not demanding spousal support. I got a consumer proposal, and I paid off our debt as well as my vehicle. Times were still tough for me for a few years, but then they were both paid off, and for the first time in my life, I had money. I could buy groceries without worrying. I could give money to my kids when they needed it. I could give them each two or $300 at Christmas time to help them out. I could go on vacation or rent a cottage in the summer, and I could actually save money. Life was good. Fast forward to 2021. I started to hear grumblings that I might lose my job if I didn't comply with the vaccine mandate. My unit was so short-staffed that overtime was readily available. 
So I started picking up overtime shifts in an effort to build a nest egg just in case I should lose my job. But I didn't really believe that was going to happen. Surely to goodness, during the worst nursing shortage in history, someone would come to their senses and the most senior, most knowledgeable, most experienced nurse in the obstetrical department would not be put off work. But that is exactly what happened. I went to work on December the 1st and was told by Director of Health Services, Lisa Lynch, that I had to leave. And being denied EI, my little nest egg didn't last long. My employer told EI that I left voluntarily with no just cause. It didn't seem too voluntary to me. In March of 2022, I was forced to put in for retirement, and I'd had no intention of retiring in the immediate future. I loved my job. I didn't receive a check until June. Fortunately for me, they backdated my retirement to December the 1st. Unfortunately, my ex-husband got 45% of my pension. So once again, after paying back all the people I owed, I was soon back to living paycheck to paycheck. And through no fault of my own, I had done nothing wrong. In 35 years, I had never been disciplined or reprimanded. I had only stood up for my rights. And not in a hateful, malicious way, I had simply declined to put into my body what I felt was not a safe or necessary chemical. And anyone who really knows me knows that I have avoided chemicals as much as possible for many years. So this wasn't a new radical stance for me. It was totally in keeping with my natural lifestyle. I was devastated to lose my job. I loved nursing. My dad used to tell me that when I was a little girl, I always wanted to be a nurse and a mother. So I was a happy woman. Caring for obstetrical patients in labor and delivery, teaching breastfeeding to countless women, caring for them postpartum was my passion. And I was damned good at it. Just ask the women of Cumberland County and surrounding areas who have delivered a child in Amherst since February of 1988, and they will confirm that. To this day, I meet women of all ages in all settings who tell me that I was there when they had their child and that they have never forgotten me. Obstetrical nurses have a huge impact on women's lives, as well as their families' lives. And I was very fortunate, because our unit looked after off-service patients and pediatric patients as well. Heart attack patients from ICU awaiting cardiac catheterizations, surgical patients, medical patients, gynecological patients, palliative patients. We got them all. And I was always thankful for that because it kept me learning and enabled me to keep my hand in all aspects of nursing to some degree. And it allowed me the privilege of caring for men and women of all ages. So nursing was my passion, and though I had done nothing wrong, I was no longer allowed to do it. And that brings me to my coworkers. How I loved my coworkers. And I can safely say that the majority of them loved me and they depended on me. They looked to me to answer their questions and show them how to do things. They came to me to start IVs because I was the expert. They came to me for my advice because I was the only one on my unit with 35 years of knowledge and experience. 
I hadn't seen it all, but I had seen and been involved in most of it. Labor and delivery nursing involves looking after two patients, and one of them can't be seen. It's an art, a talent, a gut feeling, a skill. And it's not a skill that one develops overnight. It requires knowledge, but it also requires experience. You can read about all the obstetrical emergencies in a book and take a course and ace the exam. But nothing can replace living through those emergencies firsthand and learning how to deal with them to come out on the other side with a live mother and a live baby who are both fully functional. And sometimes, regardless of what you do, you lose a baby. I have experienced that firsthand with my first pregnancy, culminating in a stillbirth. So I was always drawn to those mothers who suffered a similar loss. I felt I had something to share with them. And Lord knows that no one else was jumping up and down to look after them. In my almost 34 years in obstetrics, I had dealt with most obstetrical emergencies, both as a patient and as a nurse. So I was not just a valued and loved coworker. I was their mentor, their only mentor. The next person in line to me had about five years experience. One coworker had worked in obstetrics with me many years before, but had actually left nursing altogether for several years. So upon returning, she had forgotten a lot of what she had known and had also lost her confidence. And confidence is important. Knowing what you know. Not being cocky, but confident. It is knowledge and confidence that allows you to stand up. To stand up for your patients and be their advocate. To stand up to the doctors when you don't agree with their approach or treatment. To stand up for yourself and your co-workers when management is putting you and them into unsafe working situations. And I did that for my patients and my co-workers. I stood up for them. And I stood up for myself, which is why I don't have a career anymore. Thank you, Ms. Allen. I'm going to follow it's, up with some questions. Okay. I think you've uh, you've touched on everything that um, that I could think of for your personal situation, and you've described in a very heartfelt way the impact on you personally. I do want to spend some time with you since you spent so long in the Cumberland region uh, practicing nursing. Uh, I wanted to talk to you generally about the healthcare system there in and around the time of the pandemic. Yeah. Um, You just you use the phrase in your evidence, uh, fully staffed. Yeah. Uh, and how how infrequently the unit was fully staffed, and so there was lots of overtime available. What would a fully staffed unit look like? So full staffing on my unit was considered to be two RNs and one LPN around the clock. In the year before I left, full staffing was in place probably about sixty percent of the time. Often we were staffed with one RN and one LPN. If we were lucky, 
We had one RN and two LPNs. Our LPNs were good. They were smart and capable, but their scope of limitations had limitations, their scope of practice. LPNs are not permitted to be the labor and delivery nurse. They could be the second nurse in the delivery room and look after the baby when it was born. And they could initiate a resuscitation if it was necessary. But if there was only one RN on, it meant that if there was a patient in labor, she had to be one-on-one -on -one with that patient. It meant she had no one to relieve her for breaks and no one to look after a second labor patient if one came in. That was a scary scenario, one that you were always hoping would never occur. And having only one RN put a lot of pressure on our LPNs. They were expected to look after the entire unit outside of the delivery room, plus come in to help the RN during the delivery. So if we couldn't staff with two RNs, we always tried to have two LPNs with our one RN. More bodies was preferred. LPNs were more likely to pick up extra shifts if I was the RN on that shift because they had confidence in my knowledge and ability to keep my cool and handle whatever situation came up. And when you were fully staffed, or at least have a, had a full RN contingent, which would have been two of you on at once, yeah. you've said that you were often acting as a mentor to the other RN oh, who was absolutely yes. who was on. Yeah. And so when you weren't there, presumably one of those uh, less experienced were the only ones on if, if there was only one. Yeah. Yes, yes. And they were put into terrifying situations, mm -hmm. you know, and the thought of being two or three or four years experience, five years even, and not having anybody else for backup. It's terrifying. My understanding from speaking with you earlier was that in the context of this short staffing, uh, from March to September, your obstetrics unit was actually close. Sorry, from March to September 2020. Is that right? Yes. Your, yeah. your obstetrics unit was closed. Yeah. What was the reason, to the best of your knowledge, for that closure? We were closed from March 27th to, to September of 2020. We were told it was because we were already so short-staffed that if any of us got COVID, the unit would end up shutting down anyway. So we were rerouted to other areas in the hospital, most often medical, but sometimes surgical or ICU or eMERGE. And during those five months, bed occupancy was down drastically. There were no COVID cases in the hospital. There were very few patients in the hospital. Um, medical had 38 to 39 beds, and they might have 20 beds occupied. The ER generally had very few patients during a shift. Often the nurses were sitting around behind the desk chatting because they had no patients. And the majority of patients on medical were patients with dementia awaiting placement. And I have to speak on their behalf. Here we were in our black and white uniforms with masks on. They were already confused. They could never get familiar with anyone because we all looked generally the same. The mask muffled our voices and hid our facial expressions and kept them from reading our lips when most of them had some degree of deafness. I would often stand across the room from them, pull my mask down so that they could see that I was a human being and talk to them in a raised voice so they could read my lips.
It was a horrible way to treat people. They weren't permitted any visitors, and they knew none of us. I saw some amazing nurses go out of their way to try to enable these patients to FaceTime with their families or talk with them on the phone, but most of the patients struggled to understand what was going on. Many of them died before they were ever placed in long-term care because the rules for getting into long-term care were ridiculous during COVID. If they became palliative, then they were permitted a family member, or sometimes two, but never at the same time. Imagine, it could be two people who lived together at home, but they weren't allowed to visit their dying mother at the same time. Often by the time they were palliative, they no longer recognized their own family members because they hadn't seen them for so long. The masks and the rules were a travesty to healthcare and particularly to this segment of our society. And during all that time, we did plenty of testing, but we never had one case of COVID. Given the, in the context of the government messaging about how unsafe an unvaccinated nurse would be to their patients, mm -hmm. um, did you ever alert any of your patients to your status? Every one of them. What did you, how, how did you do that? Tell us about that. I would just bring it up in conversation. Um, I was led to believe by the occasional person, not many, my, my, Nursing co-workers were very supportive of me, unlike a lot of people that I hear of. But on occasion, I would hear grumblings that, that patients didn't want to be looked after by nurses who weren't vaccinated. So I made a point of telling them all that I had not been vaccinated against COVID. Did you have... I you... never once had a single patient... Uh, respond in a negative way. I never had one of them ever ask to have another nurse. Now, in, at times, that would have been difficult because I would have been the only RN. But there was never a patient that ever made me feel uncomfortable or like they felt like they were being looked after somebody who had the plague. Okay. Those are uh, all of my questions. I'll defer to the panel for any questions. I have a, a couple of short questions. Okay. Um, were you the only one in 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 your health community that was uh, affected like this or let go? In my hospital, I was the only RN. There were two LPNs on the medical floor who didn't take the vaccine and so lost their jobs. Um, I have no way of knowing how many other people in my hospital in other departments or how many other people in say nursing homes in the community didn't take the shot. Mm -hmm. Who's that? Oh. Uh. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it also said that the unit was closed down between March and December of March and September, September through 2020. Yeah. And the reason given was that if they lost one nurse, they couldn't operate. Yeah. So my question is, when they lost you, how did they operate? Well, I can tell you, they're, they're not a happy bunch. Um, they were terrified. 
when they started thinking that they might lose me. Um, we would have staff meetings and one of the girls would say, why aren't we going to talk about the elephant in the room here? Like, what are we going to do if Fonnie has to leave? What are we going to do about this? And our unit manager would respond by saying, well, you know, that's not really something that I have any information about. I can't really talk about that. And uh, nobody was giving us any answers. And we just kept hoping beyond hope that it wouldn't happen. We had just started a, a new rotation recently and we were having a difficult time filling the spaces in that rotation. As I said, overtime was readily available. So they were wondering, what are we going to do when we lose you too? You know, and not just another staff member, but the one with the most knowledge of anybody there, mm -hmm. you know. Um, uh, one of my coworkers messaged me last week. And uh, I actually sent the message to Gail. Um, she said, Vonnie, I'm still grieving the loss of you from our unit. She said, it's never been the same since you left. I feel like it was the beginning of the end for us. She said, it's not a good place to work anymore. It's not safe. And, you know, she said, it's, you know, it's just not right. You know, we're missing you badly. Mm -hmm. Did you receive any comments, support, or anything from the rest of the stack, the doctors? You, you talked about the LPNs. You talked about the nurses. I didn't hear you say the, the doctor word. Well, it's interesting. One of our obstetricians, um, I had a great deal of respect for her. She had a little a few more years experience in obstetrics than I did. Um, and she and I often disagreed on a lot of points. Uh, but we respected each other enough to agree to disagree. But when it started getting down to the end and I knew I was going to lose my job, she would approach me and say, Vonnie, what are you going to do? Like, why don't you take the vaccine? And... I'd say, no, I'm not taking the vaccine. I'm, I'm not sure what I'm going to do, but I'm not taking the vaccine. And, uh, well, I, I, what are you, aren't you worried? Well, yeah, I'm worried, you know. And then she sent me a message one day on Messenger and said, I've been hearing that you might not be able to get your pension. Uh, they might just pay it out in one lump, one lump sum. Like, I'm really worried about you. And I said, and she said, aren't you worried? And I responded and said, yeah, I am worried. But doesn't that seem a little bit Nazi to you? Take this experimental drug that has no proven effectiveness and no safety record, or you're going to lose your job, and you might lose your pension too. And she responded back by saying, no, that doesn't sound Nazi to me. No one's leading you to the death camp. No one's taking you to the gas chambers. And, and then she went on this big tangent about how important it was to take it. Nobody said it was 100% effective, but you need to take it to protect all those vulnerable people in society. That's the last time I ever messaged with her. Thank you. 
And as far as the other doctors on the unit, um, they didn't really have much to say. One of them is my family doctor, and I've always admired him. Um, but none of them stood up for me, basically. We had one doctor in the entire hospital who spoke out very, very candidly about the vaccines, about the lockdowns, the mandates, the masks. Um, I don't know how he's still practicing. His Facebook page is covered on a daily basis with this stuff. And I'm thinking, how is he getting away with it? You know, he's still a doctor. He's the only one, the only one who spoke out against it. There's, there's one other thing I'd like to, um, to point out. Um, when I left, I, I took with me a lot of knowledge and experience. And one of the areas uh, that I can assure you is really suffering right now is breastfeeding. Um, I never took the lactation consultant course. I started it when my children were very little but I soon realized that my kids would only be little for so long and it took up far too much time. One of my coworkers, a friend and a coworker for 28 years, she took the course. Uh, she went off sick in 2016 with cancer and never came back to work and ultimately died in 2020. But even during her years at work, she was team lead, so she spent much of her time at meetings and rarely had direct patient contact. So I became known as the breastfeeding guru. I had breastfed my own four children and taken numerous courses over the years. And I had helped literally hundreds, if not thousands of women breastfeed. As with maternity in general, I had a passion for it. The girls often called me the boob whisperer. <laughs> they said, if Vonnie can't latch that baby, no one can. I spent a lot of time teaching women to breastfeed and latching their babies. And some babies won't latch. So I came up with plans to get their babies fed until we could latch them. I taught hand expression and pumping to moms as well as my coworkers. I hand expressed more women's breasts for colostrum than you could ever imagine. Because it's something that women don't come naturally. They don't know how to do that naturally. I latched babies to moms who couldn't keep their eyes open and held the babies there while their mothers slept. I spent countless hours with both inpatients and outpatients trying to resolve breastfeeding issues. Latching problems, lack of supply problems, sore nipples, blocked ducts, oversupply problems, you name it. I was the solution finder. I had two colleagues, two of my LPN co-workers, who also had a passion for breastfeeding. And I was always so pleased if one of them was coming on after I'd spent my shift with a difficult breastfeeder. I knew that they would work just as hard as I had to try to help that woman have success. But they would usually come to me to confirm that what they were doing was right. We would discuss different tactics and ideas and brainstorm with each other. But I was the one with all of the years of knowledge and by far the most hands-on experience. So when I left, that was gone. You know, like the fact that they could just do this to us 
And, you know, like, this is supposed to be about our health, all of these mandates. But none of it has been good for anybody's health. If you have no more questions, I have one final thing to say. Once upon a time, I was a respected member of my community. I was a respected aunt, mother, sister-in-law, and friend. Because of the stance I took, because I declined to take an experimental drug with no science to back it, I lost my job and my credibility. I've lost the respect of my oldest children, a niece, Many of my friends, my sister-in-law has blocked me. I have been discriminated against and denied entrance to restaurants, theaters, my bowling alley, my friend's party. I was unable to go away on vacation with my four oldest girlfriends of over 40 years. I spent 35 years in a profession where I helped and cared for other people, but now I am not allowed to speak because my opinion no longer matters. I have been censored. Thank you, Ms. Allen. Thank you, Ms. Allen, for your example of courage and your service. Uh, we, uh, again, are running a bit over time, so can we try and make the break uh, only seven or eight minutes and be back in in a very short time? And I also just want to remind everyone in the audience, many of you already have, I'm sure, but out uh, there watching this uh, remotely, uh, if you haven't already done so, go to uh, nationalcitizensinquiry.ca and sign the petition. Thank you. Okay. I want to thank our, uh, the folks at home watching um, across Canada, the uh, hearings, the first of three days of hearings here in Truro, Nova Scotia. Next witness is Leanne Coolen. And uh, Leanne, do you affirm solemnly to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Yes, I do. Good afternoon, Ms. Coolin. Hi. Can you tell us uh, where you're from? I'm originally from Newfoundland. I live now in Head of Jador. Head of Jador, Nova Scotia? Yes. Okay. And uh, I understand uh, that you did take uh, one dose of the vaccine. Yes. Okay. And when did you do that? Uh, May 27th, 2021. Did you do that uh, of your own accord? No. And can you elaborate on that? Uh, my employer uh, started, I guess, maybe March, April with a real push for everyone to get vaccinated. I held off until I couldn't any longer and I had to go get my first shot. They expected two, but they got one. <laughs> okay. Um, what were your reasons for hesitating? Because it was too, it was too soon. Everything was just, oh, here's a vaccine. It'll, it'll help. 
I didn't trust that it would help. I'm not an anti-vaxxer by any means. I'm, I'm fully vaccinated. My son is fully vaccinated. My husband is vaccinated. I'm not against vaccines. I was just against this because I didn't trust it. When you say that family members in your household are fully vaccinated, you mean the kind of traditional it, yes. childhood vaccines and all that sort of exactly, thing? Exactly, okay. yes. Um, and so uh, you started to feel some pressure in March and April from your employer. Yes. Did your employer have a um, uh, like a mandate in place? They did mandate it. Uh, I'm not sure if they have a written mandate. I'm sure it's probably in the company policy in some way, shape, or form. I do have emails from the uh, the president, I guess, um, kind of telling everybody to go get vaccinated. Remember, get your vaccination. Send in your verification kind of thing when you're done so we can have that on file. And Were you yeah. ever told what would happen if you did not get vaccinated? We were told that we, we wouldn't be able to work there anymore. Okay. So... And so in May of 2021, you did receive your first injection of, uh, do you know which one it, you got? It was Pfizer. Pfizer. Yeah. Okay. And do you know where you got that, who administered it? I don't know who administered it, but I did, I know where I got it. It was at the pharmacy in the superstore on, uh, Coal Harbor Road in Coal Harbor. Okay. In the pharmacy. Okay. And do you have the lot number for that? I do, but I don't have it with me. Okay. I, I know I filled it out on something, but I I didn't bring it. All right. Um, all right. So you got one injection of Pfizer in May of 2021. And tell us what happened after that. Everything seemed normal until uh, Sunday, June 20th, when I don't remember much. I remember waking up in the morning and hearing my husband talking to, I assume, somebody on the phone because it was only him and I in the room. Um, it was the paramedics. I had had a stroke. So the ambulance came, and the next thing I knew, I had paramedics at the foot of my bed. They took me to the hospital, and I was there for five days. Has your husband described that experience to you? He has, uh, not in great detail because he's still traumatized from the event. I make noises in my sleep. He wakes up immediately thinking, what's going on here? So, yeah, he, he still lives with it. And what did he tell you about the experience? He, I, I, I don't even know how to put it into words. Um, he said my face was kind of twisted, obviously, because I had droop on one side of my face. I was trying to say words. He couldn't understand anything. I wasn't there, so I don't know, but. He doesn't really elaborate on it because he doesn't talk about things like that. So, <laughs> Okay. The five days that you were in the hospital, can you describe how you were feeling, some of the symptoms you were having? I, I don't remember any symptoms at all, really. It kind of just happened and it went away. I'm, I'm left with uh, memory sort of loss or I don't know what to call it. I, I can't get my thoughts organized as quickly as I used to be able to. Um, but I went through several tests in the hospital, several CAT scans, um, everything. I had blood work done, I think, twice a day. Um, I had a, an IV with a heparin drip. Um, because of the blood clots, the blood clots were in my arteries, not in my veins. Um, I do have Factor V Leiden, but it is actually in my a report from the hospital that they don't believe that was the cause of the stroke. 
So with all the other tests that I had done, I still, nobody gave me a reason as to why this happened. So I'm still left wondering why. Okay. When you were in the hospital, was there any discussion about whether you'd had your vaccine and when? No. Uh, before I got out of the ambulance, they gave me a COVID test because I wasn't allowed in the hospital without one. I did mention to them at that point that I had just had my vaccine about three weeks ago um, and nobody said anything. A couple of days later, I believe, uh, when I was in the room and there were medical teams visiting, I had mentioned that I had my vaccine about three weeks ago and nobody paid any attention to those words coming out of my mouth. They kind of just turned around and walked away and nobody said anything about it. So during the entire time that you were in the hospital, no doctor or medical professional asked you any questions about the proximity of your stroke to your vaccine injection? None. How old are you? I, now I'm 42. And at the time? 41. 41 years old. Is there any history of stroke in your family? There is. Uh, my grandmother, I believe she was in her 50s when she had a stroke. I think she also has or had factor five Leiden. So she had blood clotting. Uh, I believe she had a blood clot in her leg. She did have a pulmonary embolism, a stroke. Uh, she had an aneurysm that was clipped. It didn't leak or anything. So they, they settled that. But she had the typical, I guess, factor five Leiden. Okay. things happening. Do you know whether um, her stroke was consistent with that condition or as in your case, inconsistent with that condition? I, I can't say okay. one way or the other. All right. But, um, and we have your discharge summary that we can put up on the screen. Mm -hmm. uh, it's one of the exhibits. And uh, no? Okay. I was given an exhibit number. So if I could just have one moment. I'm going to find that in a second. Sure. Um, all right. Indicating that you have this condition, factor five Leiden, you called it? Yes. Okay. And indicating specifically that it was not responsible for your stroke and that that's because your stroke was um, an arterial clot. Yes. And factor five Leiden is specifically responsible for intravenous clotting. Yes. Okay. It's a TR-003. No. Okay. Um, I'm going to pass up this copy to the panel uh, because we were supposed to have that uploaded so that they can see that. And I'm specifically referring, uh, commissioners, to the second paragraph, with, starting with the word hematology. Second paragraph on the first page. Hematology was consulted and the patient was started on a heparin drip. It was felt that her factor V Leiden mutation was not the cause of these arterial clots, as this is associated with increased venous clotting. So the one pre-existing condition that you're aware that you had 
we've ruled they have ruled out as the cause. Yes. Okay. And you're not aware of any other pre-existing conditions which would potentially cause you to have a stroke at 41 years old. No, I'm not aware of anything. Are you um in in the context of of that year or the previous years were you generally healthy? Yes. Okay. Um what if any long-term impact have you felt this had on you? I just I I don't it's like I don't know myself anymore. I know my my thoughts and, and stuff, I can process thoughts, like thoughts come quickly. I just can't organize them to get them out. Uh, things that I enjoyed doing, I don't enjoy anymore. I just, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just here. <laughs> like, it's just all the drama with everything around the whole vaccinations and you can't talk about it and everything else. So just sweep it all under the rug and it, it, it gets to you, mm -hmm. <laughs> really. Are you on any medication that you weren't on previously? I am. Uh, they prescribed uh, atorvastatin for high cholesterol. Okay. And uh, vitamins, vitamin D, vitamin B12. Is and that in relation to your stroke? That's what they prescribed for me when I left the hospital, yeah. Okay. Um, did you, do you have regular updates with your family doctor? I don't. I, I haven't had a family doctor for quite some time. I do have a nurse practitioner now. And I, I do have to go and get some blood work done for an update on where I'm at. How often do you have to do that? Uh, nobody told me anything. So okay. I guess it's it's my own discretion. Okay. Yeah. Did you ever have any conversations with her about, about the, after your stroke, about your stroke? After my stroke, I did talk with the nurse practitioner head at that point. He was very supportive. He seemed like he kind of felt that, well, maybe the vaccine did have something to do with it. That made me feel fantastic because I'd never had anyone actually on my side before. Um, now I don't have him any longer. He's been replaced with another nurse practitioner. Um, I did speak with her about it, but she's not as vocal as he is about it. So I assume that she doesn't want to talk about it. Are you aware of whether or not that the, your first nurse practitioner, the male, if he reported your uh, symptoms, your stroke? To I'm the, not aware. To the vaccine injury database? I'm not aware that he did. Okay. Did the, did the mandates have any other impact on your, actually, before I move on to that, I take it, you, I understand you did not have the second dose. But correct. What if any impact did that have on your employment? Uh, I had to leave my job because they kept at me about another vaccine or an exception letter. Uh, in a follow-up appointment I had with hematology, I asked the doctor on the phone, um, is there any way I can get an exemption letter because work is asking me to get the second vaccine? She told me if I was worried about having another stroke to get my second vaccination before my fragment injections ran out, which was the prescription they sent me home with from the hospital. And that's when I gave up and I said, I'm not going to get an exemption letter. I'm not having another vaccine, so I'll just have to move on. And that's what I did. I, I quit that job in December 2021. Thank you. Has, uh, did the, the rules and mandates, the Vax Pass, all that sort of stuff, did that have any other impact on your life? Um, well, my husband got the second shot because we were still at that job and 
they pressured him to get it. He felt like he had to get it to support the family. Um, my son completely refused it. And I don't blame him. Um, he did feel pressure from his friends. He did get bullied. Um, he did get kicked off the soccer team because he wasn't vaccinated and he wasn't allowed to play. Um, I told him, if you want to participate, I'll take you to get vaccinated. No, I don't want it. I don't want it. And I didn't push any further. I just, it was a simple question. If you want it, but because of what happened to me, he he refused it. And I'm very thankful for that. How old is he? Uh, he's 18. 18. Yeah. Okay. Those are my questions. You said that you had gotten one dose of one of the vaccines. I think you said the Pfizer one. Yes. When you went to get your vaccine, what did the doctor or the person who gave it to you, the pharmacist, whoever it was that gave it to you, how did they explain to you, um, you know, the, 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 the risks and the benefits of the vaccine so that you could make an informed decision? Nobody explained anything. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ms. Fula. Thank you. Good afternoon. My name is Allison Steves. Like Chess, I'm a non-practicing lawyer, a member of the Nova Scotia Bar. Thank you. Uh, do you affirm that you will tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Yeah. Thank you. Can you please state your name for the record? Yeah, my name is Chet Chisholm. And Chet, where are you from? I'm from Anaganish, Nova Scotia. And what is your occupation? I am a paramedic, and I've been a paramedic for 12 years. For 12 years? 12. 12. And how do you like being a paramedic? Oh, it's the best job in the world, man. Um, it's probably the most one of the most rewarding professions that you can you can ever work. Like you show up, you show up on people's worst day, and like your your goal is to improve it. No one's ever mad that the paramedics show up. Well, some some are, but not many. Um, and like with with everything that's happened, like if I had a lot of friends and colleagues say like, hey, if you could go back and do it all again, would you? And my answer has always been, yeah, I just, I'd go back and I'd have done it sooner. So back in March, 2020, when we started hearing about COVID, mm. were you working as a paramedic at that point? Uh, no, I was currently off work. I was off with workers' compensation. Uh, in March of 2019, I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder and was placed off on medical leave awaiting uh, treatment. Were you planning to return to work eventually? Yeah, it was that was the hope. Um, my uh, like uh, mental health team was pretty keen on getting me back to work because I was gung ho to get into treatment, get back on the trucks, and kind of what was looming on the horizon and the state of EMS in Nova Scotia felt imperative to do so. Did you receive the treatment that you were waiting for? No, I was 
I was on deck to get what's called EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization and reprogramming, which is often used very well with uh, PTSD. And they see a lot of success with first responders and veterans. Um, and my first appointment was kind of like the meet and greet uh, appointment and to kind of set up a rapport was the first day of lockdown. So uh, we showed up, we talked about what we were going to do, and that was it. Um, everything got canned thereafter, and then I was put into limbo and um, wasn't seen again for close to another year because we weren't allowed to have any in-person appointments whatsoever. So you did get the treatment after a year? Uh, no, I was I was met. I went from a psychologist to uh, working with a counselor, and we were kind of doing like the prep stages, building the rapport, getting a background of what was going on. And we would kind of, things would kind of, we'd get a little bit of momentum and then they'd say, well, you can't meet in person again. And EMDR is an in-person thing. And so we'd have to just kind of do talk therapy on the phone and discuss things and uh, talk about stressors. But like, we never really got to, we never got into a, like a groove of things. Um, and it, it kind of was on and off, on and off, on and off, uh, up until, um, probably late spring, early summer of 2021, where um, things just kind of got canned again and I got put back into the wait list and waiting in limbo um, where we continue to sit. And what impact would you say that the delay in this treatment had on you? Um, I've certainly had uh, relapse into some of my PTSD symptoms that I've had previously somewhat under control um, and not being able to kind of like not because you kind of have need to do maintenance while you're working through this and we couldn't do any of that um, and like being in person and actually being able to connect with somebody and talk about these things and work through it and then actually build to a therapy is incredibly beneficial there's such a disconnect when it's on the other end of a phone or on a screen um, and not only that, but like my counselor was getting extremely frustrated because she's like, you are, you are primed and pretty well primed and ready to go. We can get you back on the trucks and get you going. But like this keeps getting in the way. And so we, it's like we always had to keep starting from from scratch again. So are you still on leave from the same job? Uh, yes, I'm still on leave. Um, and due to the time frame that I've been off um, with our contractual agreement with the union because the clock is ticked down. I've been terminated from my position at EHS. So you're only allowed to be off for so long with an, a, an injury before you yeah. become so, terminated. So um, at two years, uh, they'll hold your full-time position for two years. So that time frame ran out and as we'll get into it in a little bit here. Um, is kind of, that's when like we needed to push for this so I don't lose anything else. Uh, and at the three-year mark, you're, you're canned. That's it. So you lose all your seniority and everything. Do you have reason to believe that had you received the treatment in the time frame it was originally scheduled, you would have returned to work in, in time yeah. to avoid losing your job? Pretty well. Everyone in my mental health team was pretty keen. I'm like, yeah, uh, pretty sure Chet's going to go right back on the trucks. He wants to be there. Um, and like, there's been such a high success rate with this, with other first responders. Um, but yeah, it's, it, it was looking good. Not so much. 
So during the time you were awaiting treatment, did you take the vaccine against COVID-19? Yeah, I, uh, there was a push for it from our employer. Um, and I was initially I declined because I was eligible in December of 2020 and January of 2021. Because I was off work, young guy, pretty healthy. Uh, I said, no, thanks. I'll wait. Like if we're going to give it to anybody, give it to people who are vulnerable and whatnot. I don't need it right now. Uh, but when it became available for people in my age group, for people in their 30s, um, I got my first shot on May 21st. Um, and f for the reasons is we work with the most vulnerable people at the most vulnerable point in their life. And um, we are in constantly different clinical situations throughout a shift. You can start your shift in a backseat of a car in a ditch, and then you can be in an old folks home and treating a COVID patient, and then you could be going into the ICU. It's, it's a mixed bag every time you go to work. And so the likelihood that I'm going to get a lot of exposure to COVID is quite high, and it's going to be in the back of an ambulance, and it's going to be probably right in my face. So um, the, the hope was that this could help mitigate um, cross-exposure amongst vulnerable sectors. So you didn't feel coerced to take a U? Uh, yes and no. Um, it's a little annoyed with kind of like the push. It's like, hey, you got to do this. You got to do this right now. And But um, I, was, I wasn't ever angry at the point of of getting it because like I, if, if it did what they said it did on the tin, um, then that could be beneficial both for myself, um, but more importantly for the vulnerable people whom we deal with every day. Who administered it to you, do you recall? Uh, it was given to me by an RN, uh, and that was done at one of the local pharmacies in Antigonish. Before taking it, did they advise you of any of the risks? The only risk that we really discussed was the risk of anaphylaxis, because I have food allergies, and so we talked about that. Uh, and it's like, hey, just hang around for like an extra, like, 20 minutes or so, just so we can keep an eye on you. And I've I've done vaccination clinics for like flu shots and stuff, so I know you know the whole rigmarole of, hey, we're gonna give you this, we're gonna we're gonna keep an eye on you and make sure nothing happens, and then if something happens, we'll report it and take care of you. And how did you feel after taking it? Uh, initially, I felt fine, uh, but by that evening, I was I was pretty slack, um, really really tired, and I just kind of and I was kind of par for the course for any other vaccines I've gotten for work or school in the past. Um, but what kind of really drew attention to some things is uh, I've been dealing with PTSD and crippling insomnia for years at that point, for like two years at that point, where I would need to take medication to sleep. And I was went from not sleeping at all to uh, sleeping most of the day to sleeping probably like 20 hours or more, um, and then just being incredibly sluggish and getting a little short of breath here and there. Um, and that kind of escalated over the next few weeks. So those symptoms persisted and increased over yeah. the next few weeks? Yeah, they, um, it started with um, like incredible fatigue, uh, which led to shortness of breath. And then eventually I would get like a tinge of chest pain when I was laying on my back. Uh, and it ultimately built up to like I was like my dad had taken a tree down in the yard and I went out to help him just load a couple chunks of log in like the front of his tractor. And 
uh, got extremely short of breath, had just, like stabbing chest pain here, just left of my sternum, which radiated into my back and told dad, I was like, hey, like, you gotta go to the hospital right now. Something's something's up. Um, I can't say what, but this there's something very wrong at the moment. And it became incredibly diaphoretic, uh, really sweaty and pale as a ghost. Had you had similar symptoms in the past? No. So you said you went to the ER, so you consulted a healthcare provider about these symptoms. Yeah, I was seen. Uh, I obviously went in, talked to the triage nurse, said, hey, this was going on, and was admitted, had EKGs and stuff done, and explained, talked to the nurse. And these are all people I work with. And they're like, dude, what do you think is going on? And I was like, well, I think it's one of these things. And they're like, yeah, something's something's definitely something's definitely up because you, you never look like this. And um, um yeah, so we did a bunch of EKGs, blood work, did my vitals. My vitals were all abnormal. And did they find anything? Um, not at the time. Um, like, I know, like, I was incredibly, really hypertensive. My blood pressure was out quite a bit. I was tachycardic. Um, but uh, doctor didn't seem, to, didn't seem to see anything in my blood work or my EKGs. And so I just said, maybe it's just esophageal spasms and sent me on my way. And did the symptoms persist after that? Yeah, they never, they never quite resolved. They would calm down, um, but they, uh, they did persist. And any time on any exertion or lying on my back, things would exacerbate. Um, like I'd get more short of breath. I, I can, again, develop more chest pain. Um, the fatigue persisted. Well, still persists, but like I would be pretty well um, bedridden some days, no energy to get up and do anything, um, and which is was entirely new. It was like a complete shift because uh, I used to be up doing stuff pretty well, pretty regularly. Used to be in really good shape and whatnot, but so it was a it was a drastic change. And how many healthcare providers did you consult about these symptoms? Uh, well, I was admitted into the emergency room three times over the course of the summer. Um, when there was no, nothing was ultimately found um, uh, aside from having abnormal vitals and just the symptoms that I presented with. Um, the second physician that I saw in the ER kind of just shrugged and said, man, I don't know what's going on. You're obviously in distress. Something's, something's up, but we can't pinpoint anything. Um, and the third doc I saw, which would have been probably late July, uh, he said, I think, I think this warrants further investigation. Like we need to, we should order some more cardiac tests, like echocardiogram, and you should follow up with your family doc, get a cardiac MRI and get a stress test and see if we can pin down what's going on. Like, I don't, I don't know for sure, but like just on the way you're presenting and like what you're telling us and your vitals, like there's something, there's something here, there's something wrong. So we need to look into it. Uh, and he, uh, he actually gave me like a shot of Toradol, which is a strong anti-inflammatory, which took the edge off for maybe a couple hours. But again, the symptoms persist. I had discussions with my family physician who, uh, was often very dismissive and abrasive about, um, my concerns. Um, and I've had, uh, in, in like a yearly follow-up that I had with WCB, cause we have a follow-up every year where they. A uh, physician comes in and talks to you and it's like, hey, how's your PTSD going? What are the symptoms you're having? And we talked about that. And then we talked about this. And he's like, yeah, based on 
your history and like kind of the cycle of symptoms, like like we should there's something going on here and we should look into it. Did um, you? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Did you ask any of these physicians uh, if there could be a link with the COVID-19 vaccine? I don't think I ever asked if there was a link, but like when they asked, when did this start? Um, I told them like I didn't feel good after getting the vaccine and it hasn't let up since. Um, but I don't think we ever like like specifically honed in like I suspected it. But do I know for sure? Absolutely not. So they couldn't find anything objectively wrong to explain your symptoms. And they knew that they had started within close proximity to you taking the COVID-19 yes. vaccine. Do you know if any of them filed an adverse event following immunization form? Uh, no, no, there was no discussion of that whatsoever. And so they didn't ask you any more questions about that or indicate that they were concerned? No, not whatsoever. How did they respond when you mentioned that it was in relation to the vaccine? It wasn't really discussed or it was just kind of glazed over. Um, like some of the nurses expressed more concern, like when they asked me and it's like when like and like I had colleagues, like other paramedic colleagues who said like who expressed their concern just with the timing and kind of some of the things that they had seen on calls that they had been discussing with me as well. And have you shared your concerns about a link between your symptoms and the vaccine with others? Yeah, um, I've spoken to numerous family and friends and colleagues. You get and you get a mixed bag of the way people react. Um, I've had people call me an anti-vaxxer, far-right conspiracy theorist, and every other nasty thing under the sun. Um, but then I've had others who've come to me and said, um, this is what happened to me. This is what my family members experienced. I've had med uh, like medic colleagues come to me and say like, hey, man, we were talking about what happened to you, what might have happened to you in the, the hallway. And like like the other crew that was there was like was talking about like how they had like three kids who had like myocarditis and POTS and stuff come in and like coming in through 911. We don't see kids in EMS very often. And so like that was concerning. Um, but yeah, it's been a, it's been a, it's been a mix. Like I've had friends who have since abruptly stopped talking to me whatsoever. Um, and I've been approached and like, I've talked about this publicly and my concerns and some of the, and I've talked about some of the problems that we're having in EMS right now. Um, and I've had people like from across the country, thank me for speaking about these things. Uh, recently I had somebody reach out and said like, I didn't like you and I have never met, but like, like, I know who you are because you helped someone in my family on a 911 call, and they still talk about you years later. Like, thank you for doing this. Thank you for talking. Um, thank you for your service, and I'm sorry well, for what you're going through. So you had concerns that these might be related to the vaccine. Your first dose, did you end up taking the second dose? No, I did not. And in October 2021, when Nova Scotia implemented the vaccine passport policy and several mandates, um, how did this impact your life? Well, because I'm not vaccinated enough. Um, <laughs> I was banned from restaurants. Um, I wasn't allowed to access some different services. Couldn't go to the gym. Not that I was feeling well enough to do so anyway. Um, when I went in to uh, pick up like the results from my echocardiogram and copies of my blood work and EKGs from 
the hospital, I was stopped at the door and said, you can't come in. And it's like, I'm picking up blood work, man. I guess got to go around the corner. And it's like, no, you need to be double vaccinated to come in here. And it was a back and forth for about a good 20 minutes. He's explaining. It's like, I'm here because we're investigating, trying to determine if something has happened with results as a result of this. And we need, I need to get that paperwork so we can figure out what happened, if anything. Uh, and eventually they're like, just let him go in. He's just got to go around the corner. It's like 30 feet. Um, and then like one of the, one of the, one of the worst things, um, is one of my best friends was diagnosed with cancer during the pandemic. And because I'm not, I haven't taken the shot twice, I wasn't allowed to go see him when he was dying in the hospital and never got to say goodbye to one of my best friends because you're just, you're not vaccinated enough. So you're not allowed in here. And like, as, as many people know, the vaccine mandate for healthcare providers is still in effect. So even if I do get a clean bill of health and my PTSD is, you know, wiped clean and we're good to go, I'm still banned from going back to work. Not allowed to go. Chet, do you have any final words about the impacts of the COVID-19 measures on your life? Yeah, like it's, it's had a significant impact, not only on my mental health, but like my physical health, like the associated with PTSD as well. And like you can see, like just with the way EMS is right now in Nova Scotia, morale is plummeting every day. Um, since the start of like 2020, we have lost 331 paramedics from the workforce. That's one quarter of the paramedics who work for EHS. We've since hired some new people, but like they're, they, these are people who are fresh out of school. Like they don't have experience. Like even on my rotation, there's like four of us on my rotation that are either been put off on injury or PTSD, and like there's like 60 years between the four of us, and that's gone. Um, and you can't get that back, and it's it's infuriating, and it's also detrimental to like the well-being of everybody in this province. That like there's people like me, and I'm not the only one who's in this situation who want to go back to work and who would like to help and who would like to fix the problem as the EMS system is crumbling, but we're told no. Like I've even spoken to Michelle Thompson and the, the answer is that's the policy, we're sticking with the policy. And if you haven't seen the um, what the medical exemptions are to get to opt out for healthcare providers is you need to have either have blood clots, myocarditis or pericarditis, uh, a stroke, or have an allergic reaction, all of which have to be as a result to the first shot. So you have no medical exemption. It's take it or else you're let go. Or if you have an adverse event, you're probably not going to be working again anyway. Thank you. That's all my questions. Problem.
Thank you for attending as a witness, Mr. Anselm. Do you um, affirm that you will tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Yes, I do. Thank you. Good afternoon, Mr. Anselm. Where are you from, sir? Uh, I just live in Grand Lake, Nova Scotia, just right. about 40 minutes from here. And who do you live there with? Uh, just in the backyard in a small cabin at my parents for now, but I'm building a house for my family. So. Nice. For your family, you said? Yep. My wife and small daughter. She's uh, 14 months old. So. And are you employed? Yeah, I work for Canadian National Railway. What do you do there? Uh, I'm a track maintainer, so I make sure the tracks are safe for the trains to run, and uh, we repair any defects and change rails and stuff like that. And how long have you been employed with CN Rail? Uh, six years. It will be six years this year. And what policies or mandates did CN Rail adopt during the COVID crisis days? Um, November 2021, they uh, implemented the vaccine mandate. And uh, if you weren't vaccinated, you were off paid, off work for forever, basically. And so what was the um, deadline that that employees were given to vaccinate by? Uh, the deadline was November 15th, 2021. And did you receive notification of that directly from your employer? Yeah, uh, I received it from my supervisors and my uh, managers and uh, emails as well, work emails. Okay. And you brought in with you today as a, an email dated September 8, 2021 from uh, CN Communications stating that there was a uh, vaccine mandate that would be effective as of November 1st, 2021. Yeah, that's correct. Okay. And uh, that will be marked as an exhibit. And so uh, what happened uh, after that? Uh, well, basically, I was very much against taking any shots because I saw what was happening to my coworkers after the vaccines and they were getting sick, they weren't feeling well. Mm -hmm. And uh, I really held my stand up until uh, I was becoming a new father and I had to put food on the table for my family. So I decided to bite the bullet and on November 13th, I took the first shot of the Okay. And to clarify, did the, did the timeline for vaccinating remain November 1st or was it extended? It was extended. It was November 1st and then uh, I just kept not getting it and then they extended it to November 15th and then I, on the 13th I took the shot. Okay. And so uh, just to confirm, Mr. Anselm, you uh, brought in with you today an email dated October 14, 2021 from CN Rail indicating that the mandatory vaccine deadline was extended to November 15th. And what you're saying is on the 13th, you went ahead and got your vaccination. Yeah. All right. And did you do so feeling coerced or pressured? Definitely. I was getting phone calls daily from uh, supervisors and everybody and uh, telling me that yeah, after the 15th, you can't come to work and you'll be off pay. So. All right. And yeah. so were they indicating that they were going to terminate you or put you uh, on leave without pay? They weren't clear with it. They said either you're terminated or you're going to be off pay, basically laid off. So I wasn't sure what was going to happen. So I just... And so what happened on November 13th when you had your vaccination? Where, where did you go? Uh, I went to, to be honest, I don't remember the location, but it was just a walk-in uh, clinic and a nurse uh, vaccinated me. So. All right. And do you know that it was a nurse? Uh, yeah, as far as I know. Did, did she tell you she was a nurse? Uh, she did not, but I guess it's my mm -hmm. assumption. Okay. 
Um, do you know the, the batch number of your vaccine? Uh, no, I could look it up, but okay. I don't know it right now. Were you made aware of any of the potential risks associated with vaccinating? Uh, yeah, I, I was aware from my own research before. No, that, actually, uh, sorry to yeah. cut you off. I mean, did the person who administered the vaccine have any discussion with you about the risks associated with the vaccine? Uh, yeah, she actually told me that uh, for guys my age, there is a potential risk of having heart problems. And uh, she said, oh, yeah, if you have any heart issues, just go to the doctor's office. They'll give you some drugs and uh, make you feel better. And uh, I was like, okay, that sounds pretty good. But right. <laughs> I didn't want to take it, but I still did. Just, it didn't sound overly serious no, in your view? No, it was uh, like, why are you guys making me take it, take this if there's risks? And uh, I'm mm -hmm. perfectly healthy, right? So. And so uh, what, if any, symptoms developed following the, the first vaccination? Well, uh, first of all, uh, a week after my vaccine, I got seriously ill, just with a very bad flu. And uh, I was basically out for a week. And then uh, two weeks following my vac vaccination, I started to develop uh, heart pain and uh, heart palpitations, uh, shortness of breath, weakness. Mm -hmm. And uh, just I didn't feel good at all. I felt like I knew something was wrong, especially with my chest. I kept getting... Uh, stinging chest pain. Okay. And uh, had you had any of these kind of symptoms before in your life? Never. No. And how old are you, Mr. Ansel? Uh, right now I'm 26. Okay. And so how old were you when you got this vaccine? I would have been 25. Okay. Usually. And so what did you do when you started experiencing these heart pain symptoms? Well, I went to the emergency room at the uh, Cobequid uh, Health Center, just to the walk-in emergency and uh, they checked my vitals, they took my blood, they made sure I wasn't having a heart attack and basically sent me on my way. Did, did you have any discussion with them about whether this could be vaccine related? Yeah, I, I did. Uh, I told them uh, this all started after the vaccine. I never had any issues with my heart or anything like that. And they just said, oh yeah, like whatever, you're good. You know, you don't have a heart attack, so. Okay, and, and was there any discussion about completing a vaccine um, adverse event form? No, I never heard anything about that. So as far as you know, that was never completed by yep. the doctors? And what happened after that? Um, after that, I just, uh, I went home and uh, I kept going to work. Uh, I kept uh, fighting the pains and then I, I decided to go to, the, to my family doctor as well. And uh, I told him what was going on after the vaccine that I was having ch uh, chest pains and uh, shortness of breath. And uh, same thing with him. He said, uh, no, uh, it's probably not from the vaccine. You're just, you gotta just don't smoke anything, don't drink anything and just, and you'll be fine. And I tried that, uh, symptoms never went away, so. Okay, I, and did, did your doctor or your family doctor have a discussion with you about whether or not to fill out an adverse uh, event form? No, he never had any discussions about that. And your doctor didn't feel that there was any connection uh, between the vaccination and the symptoms you were having? No, he did not. No. And so what happened after that? Um, after that, I, I went in again uh, to, to my family doctor. I told him, listen, I'm going to lose my job if I don't get the second shot. And I didn't really want to get it at all, obviously. And uh, I asked him, can you fill out a exemption, a medical exemption for me? And he said, no, I can't do it without any proof. So... I just said, all right, I guess I'll be laid off. And then uh, 
And then uh, I went in again, I think it was my third time, he finally referred me to a cardiologist to get an MRI. And then, uh, okay, and so then did you go and see a cardiologist? Yeah, I went and uh, saw the cardiologist. Uh, they scanned my heart and did all the tests. And uh, it turned out that my, the outer lining of my heart was inflamed. And I had uh, pericarditis, myocarditis. And uh, yeah, the cardiologist said uh, this is from the vaccine. Okay. And so who was the cardiolo- cardiologist that you saw? Um, his name is... Uh, one second, sorry. Well, you're uh, do- Dr. Douglas uh, Baid, or sorry, Hussein Baidun. That was his name. Okay, Hussein Baidun, B-E-Y-D-O-U-N. And you brought with you today a letter from um, Dr. Baidun dated February 11, 2022. Do you have that in front of you? Yep, I've got okay. it right here. And would you look at page two? Yep. And just read the first line at the top of that page. Very likely Mr. Anselm has pericarditis, myocarditis, post-mRNA vaccine, and the echocardiogram done today was normal. In the view, the symptoms improved significantly. Uh, I would not start anti-inflammatory therapy. Any change, uh, please let me know, and I will be happy to reassess him. I would not recommend him for a second dose, and I am copying this to my colleague. All right. And so, Mr. Anselm, you received that exemption um, to not have to have take the second dose, correct? That's correct. From this time. All right. And uh, let's go back to your employment. Um, had you been working through this at this point? Uh, no, it turned out uh, I just had a kid, so I was able to get the uh, parental benefits, even right. though I was laid off. So that kept me going, luckily. Okay, so the... you were on parental leave yeah. during this period. Yeah. And what happened um, uh, with respect to the um, exemption that you had? Were you able to use that to return to work? Uh, no, I was still kind of pissed off. I didn't really want to talk to anybody. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and then my manager called me in July. He said the mandates were dropped and you can return to work. I said, all right, I'll take my whole leave until September, and then I'll come back to work. So September 2022 is when I returned to work. And so there was no period where you had to return to work um, prior to the mandates being dropped? Yeah, that's correct. You remained off on your parental leave? That's correct. Did you have any conversation with them uh, during that period when you were on parental leave as to whether or not they would take you back with the exemption? Uh, No, I did not. I just didn't even want to bother for now. How has your heart condition impacted your life? Uh, it's impacted me in every aspect of my life, physically. I can't really do the things I used to anymore, like with less vigor. Uh, mentally, it, uh, I'm my, I was just full of regret and uh, made me kind of a, less of a father, not less of a father, but mentally I was down and I, it impacted my, my fatherhood. Mm-hmm. And uh, mentally, uh, physically, everything so okay all right thank you um those are all my questions and we'll just pause for a moment to see whether the commissioners have any questions 
Um, you said that you had worked with CN Rail, uh, for, I think you said six years? Yep, six years. Yeah. When you signed your contract with CN Rail, your employment contract, was there a clause in there requiring that you had to take whatever vaccines that they might require in the future? No, there was none of that. So it's, in my eyes, it's illegal what they did. So. <clears throat> Thank you, Mr. Looking for Cassandra. There she is. You're not sure where Yeah, she's coming right there. That's where you need a cord prior for, see? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. They got shout in the corridors. Come on up, Cassandra. Cassandra, do you affirm that in the evidence you will give this commission, you will tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? As a child of God, yes, I do. Thank you. Cassandra, would you uh, please give us your phone name? Cassandra Marie Murray. Where do you live, Cassandra? In Halifax, Nova yep. Scotia. And what do you do for a living? I am a teacher. Fabulous. And where do you teach? Um, currently, I just teach privately. I used to teach, though, in a private school. Okay. Um, which private school or um, school were you teaching at? You want me to name the school? Uh, well, let's just say private school is fine. Private uh, school. With, yeah, it was a with, private school. Within in the Halifax, Halifax district, is that yes. correct? Okay, yes. Okay, there we go. Uh, and how long were you teaching at that private school? At school, um, I was there for I think three years. Three years at that school. At and that school. How long were you were you a teacher uh, overall? How long have you Over been? Over twenty teacher? years. Twenty years. Some significant significant experience there. Correct. And what grades or grade did you teach? At the time, at that school, I was teaching a grade one, two split. Grade one, two, so that would make the kids about? From anywhere from six to eight years old. Six to eight years old. Um, when the mask requirements came in, 
you have a mask exemption from a physician. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. Um, how was your experience getting that exemption? From my physician? Yes. Um, my physician was really good about it, actually. I went in there and I explained to him why I didn't want to wear a mask, what I felt, how it would impact my health. And he had no problem giving me the exemption. Fantastic. Um, did the school respect that exemption? For a short while. But with um, there was a lot of toxic and um, harmful like situations I was put in, like hostile environment that I was put in because I had that medical exemption. Okay, can you give me an example of such a hostile act that they took towards you? Sure. Um, when I first came in with the exemption, they were not really happy about it. They put it on file, though, so that it was well documented that I had it. And they said that because I wasn't wearing a mask, um, that I had to, well, they didn't say I was segregated, but I'm saying I was segregated to use a different bathroom. I wasn't allowed to use the same bathroom as the rest of the faculty. Um, I had to use a bathroom that was in the basement that wasn't very clean and was like the school had a mold mildew issue, which I was working on with my lungs too. And so that didn't help it at all. And so I had to use the bathroom in the basement. And so every time I had to go to the bathroom, I had to leave the children, run down the stairs, go to the bathroom, come back up and come back into the class. I also wasn't allowed to use the faculty um, room where they took their breaks. I had to go into this small closet that was right beside my room that we used to use as a cubby room. And it was about maybe, I don't know, maybe about five feet wide by about 20 feet deep. There was no ventilation in this room, just the door going out to the hall. So often when I would go into that room during break time, during my breaks, um, I would have to leave the door open to the hallway just so I could get some air, fresh air in there. That room was also used that if children were sick, then the child would have to go and be put in there. And if that was the case, that I couldn't be in there and I needed to leave the building. So rain or shine, that's where I was. Um, then uh, the other piece was I couldn't use the bathroom. I couldn't use the faculty room. Can you tell me about potential meetings, um, faculty yes. meetings potentially? Yeah. So even though I wasn't allowed to use the faculty room, um, I had to stay six feet away from everybody um, at a faculty meeting. I was allowed at the faculty meeting where everybody was in the same room and they were six feet apart. And I wasn't wearing a mask. And some of the other faculty members would also take off their masks. And I was allowed in that but I wasn't allowed in the other situations. So you were able to, and please correct me if I'm mistaken, but you were able to attend faculty meetings with other faculty who were comfortable taking the masks off. Um, were you able to share a lunch space with that same no. faculty? No, I wasn't allowed to go in that, that room where they were doing that. Okay, so and even at one time, if I may, when absolutely. I was sitting in the that cubby space, like that small closet, I was sitting there and I was doing some work and having something to eat. And um, 
one of the faculty members, and I was down like near the end, not near the hallway door, a faculty member came by the door. She looked in and she said, I'm going to close this door because you're breathing in there. And she closed the door. And I didn't know what to say. I just, I, I said, fine. And I just, yeah. Close the door because Close the door because I was breathing in there. It's very interesting because I normally don't go into rooms and breathe. Yeah. I think we all have similar experiences. We all tend to breathe no matter where we go. So exactly. I don't know unless it's the other place, but we won't go there. So, yes. Cassandra, um, how did that make you feel? It was, it was really traumatizing for me. It made me feel uneasy. Um, it, you know, I started seeing a psychotherapist to kind of help me through the trauma of what it was um, doing to me. You know, it made me feel really isolated and cut off from faculty members that I had called friends before that now I wasn't a friend, you know, because I wasn't complying. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it was really harmful. It was really damaging to me. And then also, you know, because it was such a, a toxic and um, I was, you know, harassing environment, you know, felt like I was policed all the time. You know, they were walking by the room because I had to stay six feet away from the children within my classroom. And which with grade one and two, which is like herding cats sometimes, it's very difficult to stay one, you know, six feet away from them with a mask. So, you know, I would see teachers kind of peeking in the room, like making sure there was no children around me and things like that. And they would often have parents come into my room to kind of help because the parent would mask and, and I wouldn't. Yeah. Do you, to your knowledge, were any of the other teachers um, policed like that? Not to my knowledge. Okay. Cassandra, because you were in such uh, such a position of of um, care with with really the most vulnerable and now most precious treasures, children, mm-hmm. um, did you did you have any special rituals that you would go through in the mornings to assess them somehow about their uh, just about their overall health or mental well being? Yeah. So prior to the COVID protocols, um, I always met my children at the door every morning and shook their hand. We look at each other in the eye, we shake each other's hand, and we say good morning to one another. And it's a good way to connect with the child. It's a good way to get an assessment of what does their hand feel like? What does their handshake like? Is it firm? Is it weak? Is it wet? Is it sweaty? Is it dry? Are they making eye contact with me? And it gives me a good indication of how I can best serve that child that day. And then at the end of the day, we would also do the same thing. But that stopped with the COVID protocols. I had to get creative and inventive. What do you mean when you say you get inventive and creative? Because I still wanted to, because I know how harmful it is for a child to be disconnected. Um, when they're in a traumatic experience or in, a, in an environment like that where they're feeling fearful, because it was really inciting a lot of fear in the children, um, that to have that connection is really important because they set, they tend to disconnect 
And you can see that. I could see it in the class and how that was playing out with the children. So I thought I need to somehow keep this connection with the children. So I had each child get a tree branch of like some sort, six feet long. And then we decorated the ends. One end was like a red or a pink. The other end was blue so that we always knew what end I would shake the color and they would shake the color so it wasn't getting mixed up, you know. And we would still, we would shake hands with the stick. <laughs> well, at least you were able to creatively form some sort of connection with the kids, even yeah. though the schools and the mandates brought in some rather ridiculous uh, rules and procedures. Mm-hmm. Cassandra, you've been a teacher for a long time. Um, how would you compare the learning environment that was brought in by the school system in at those times versus the years prior? Well, our, our faculty meetings became... Um, more and more geared towards how to police protocols for COVID and what public health was mandating. And so then our teaching became more fear-based and informed that way with the children. You know, make sure you sanitize your hands every day before we go outside the room. And if I may elaborate on that. Um, So one of the rules was that even if the children were going out into the hall to the bathroom to wash their hands with soap and water, they had to sanitize before they went out just in case they touched the walls. And they had to, like, there was one line going this way and six feet apart, one line going this way, like a coming and going line. So they were watching to make sure I was making sure the children would self-sanitize. And what happened was one of the children came in and she had caustic burns on her hands from the sanitizer. And I thought, oh, my God, this is awful. Like, why are you doing this? And her parent actually wrote in and said, I do not want my child putting sanitizer on her hands. She's fine to just wash them. So I was very grateful that that parent chimed in for that. Absolutely. You've, you've seen some devastating uh, things physically on the children because of the caustic burns from the overuse of sanitizer. What about their mental state? What about their, when I think back when I was a kid, not that's a good thing, but, um, you know, try to have a happy childhood. And a teacher was that connection, particularly in those very early grades. Mm-hmm. Because really, at the end of the day, you, you do become a replacement parent. For some for little kids that are in their five, six, seven years old. Uh, so, you know, you take on a bit of a motherly, motherly role. And how do you, uh, after the precautions were brought in, how was the learning environment? How, did the, how were the kids? Like, were kids being kids? Or was it, what would you compare it to? So, um, prior to the protocols, the children would go to each other's desks. They would eat together. They would play games together. Um, we, you know, we shared, we would put all our desks together for birthday celebrations. We did all of these things. So after we weren't allowed to do that. And even outside, they were supposed to be like six feet apart. 
and they weren't allowed to sing. And they weren't allowed to sing inside. And if they were singing outside, they had to sing six feet apart. So, um, you know, the children become fearful of one another. Their, you know, their self-regulation um, isn't, is, being, is being either stopped or it's going to be delayed because they're unsure of what they need to do and where they need to go. Their cognition, because there was children that were masking in the class, it wasn't mandated at that time for the children to be masked, um, but some families wanted their children masked, and some families even had children double masked. And you can see the blood drained from their face. Like, they didn't have the rosy cheeks and, you know, things like that. You could really see the difference. So... Their, their cognition, their rate of taking something in and digesting the education that they were being given, it's like eating a bad meal, right? It wasn't, it wasn't working and, and you could see that they couldn't keep up or they were really tired or they got tummy aches. See, you get to see a lot of that happening. And I had this special little tent in the room that I had to sanitize every time somebody came in or out of it. But at least it was a space where the child could curl up with their own little blankie and pillow and just kind of regroup a little bit, reconnect in that space, a shelter. So, um, sorry if I'm going off tangent a little bit. Yeah, so you can see that this, you know, development of self-trust, development in trust in others is starts to get delayed or, you know, or impaired in some way because they're cut off. There's have sensory deprivation. You know, their sense of touch is cut off. Even their sense of hearing could be cut off if they're not hearing their friends properly or somebody that is muffled. You know, other teachers that did come in and had a mask on, you can't probably hear properly hear tone in the voice. So you, you can't really comprehend what's being said to you. And then, you know, so there's a lot of sensory deprivation that was happening there. The sense of smell, taste, all of those things were, were slowly declining in the children that were wearing masks. Mm -hmm. And so I found that where typically I had a certain curriculum I was going, I was bringing at a good rhythm and everybody was able to digest it. And now I really had to pull back on that. I really had to have intuitive pedagogy, right? Where you kind of have to intuit what the children's needs are and just meet them where they're at. Absolutely. Um, as with any school system, whether public or private, there will be learning outcomes, that should be met or need to be met. Um, so we know that the kids are progressing at a set pace, if you will. Do you find um, that you were able to meet those learning objectives that have been set for those kids? I would say those learning objectives were definitely delayed. Where, like I just said, where you know that I had a certain rhythm, you mm -hmm. knew by this time you would be meeting these outcomes. Um, typically, you know, that's how it worked. But they were really pulled back, not just because of the impairment of the children being able to digest the information, but also from the onset of the unnecessary protocols that we were always told to police with the children to make sure they understood the rules, you know, and what needed to happen. So and then trying to explain that to the children in a, in a, in a way that's loving and kind and warm so that it doesn't further incite any fear. 
Absolutely, that makes that makes perfect sense, Cassandra. Um, I'm just going to take you back for a moment, because you know your colleagues uh, certainly seem to have an extreme fear of someone that wasn't wearing a mask. How did the kids feel when you showed up in the classroom with no mask? Was mm -hmm. there was was did did you have to give an explanation as to why you, this teacher is not wearing a mask and some of the or the rest of the teachers are? So with children at this age, uh, typically they're part of the whole. They haven't really quite the, come into their own self-individuality. That usually happens around the nine-year nine year change. So this at this age, it, their consciousness is more part of, I'm part of the whole. You're part of me, I'm part of you. So there were some children that were like, Miss Cassandra, why don't you have to wear a mask? And I said, well... I just don't, I choose not to wear a mask. And I just didn't want to, I'm not going to get into it with the child. Of course. So, and that was the end of that. You know, I just gave them a very simple answer and that was the end of that. So, yeah, that was how that was met. But ultimately, they didn't really pay attention because, you know, like you said earlier, they look to you like children still, like they, they call you mom half the time, you know, in class and instead of Miss Cassandra. Oh, yeah, sorry, Miss Cassandra, right? Because they're looking for that adult that, you know, is, is giving them, nurturing them and providing them with an environment of love and warmth. And so they just want to hug, you know, come into the folds of that. And so, yeah, so there was children that would just like, unconsciously just, you know, want to naturally come up and give me a hug. And I would kind of like hide them off to the side, right? Okay, sh we're not <laughs> hugging, <laughs> you know? Um, so anyway, yeah. Uh, wow. It's, uh, it's, it's kind of, kind of um, frightening what, what happened and what, what managed to run in and imposed on our, on our children. Because then I don't really have... Um, any other questions? But is there anything that you feel you'd like to add before I yeah. defer to the, to the commissioners? Okay. Please go ahead. Yeah. So one of the other things that had happened, just to give you another like picture, is the executive director, um, you know, who's supposed to be impartial and fair to everyone. One day I was walking in close to the office and she was coming out of the office, which meant that we were kind of going by close to one another and she had her mask on. She literally turned her back to me because I was walking beside her. And then after, like, there was a time where we all went online and I won't even get into how detrimental that is for children, but then we went online learning and then when we were coming back from the online learning, it was mandated that all the children and everyone within the school had to wear a mask. Even the little pre-primary ones all had to wear a mask. So they told me, they called me and they said, we can't have you come back to school. We can't, we can no longer honor your medical exemption and we won't and we can't have you back to school. So what we're going to do is we're going to put you on paid leave, but we're going to have um, uh, a sub substitute teacher lead your class, and you have to provide them with lesson plans. So I did that for a few weeks, and then everybody went off online again. 
So then um, at the end of, near the end of the school year, I think it was like the end of May, beginning of June, I'm not quite sure, Mm -hmm. but, um, and this is 2021, uh, they were going to go back into the classroom for one or two weeks. And so they said, well, um, we can't have you back in the classroom. We can't honor your medical exemption. And we won't. And so unless you want to wear this helmet that was like, it's called a microclimate helmet. They were willing to pay over $400 for this microclimate helmet that looks like one of those old sea diver helmets. And I thought, no, I'm not. That would just, those children have enough. I am not stepping in front of those children with a never mind my own trauma of having to deal with that and i have a medical exemption so that was where i said no and so they just kept making this environment for me at the school very toxic very hostile you know watching me all the time um all these little things adding up and i decided at um that you know, this was not in my contract. They were, this was not the terms of my employment. My terms of employment were significantly changed. And so due to the employer's conduct, um, I felt forced to leave my job and I made my decision to resign. Fantastic. I am... <clears throat> So just quickly to reiterate, uh, so you had a valid medical exemption from a physician in Nova Scotia and the school chose to disregard it entirely and essentially tell you, you know, your exemption means nothing to us. So if you want to come, you put on a spacesuit, right, and, and, and teach because that would be a wholesome environment to, to them. That's correct. Thank you very much, Cassandra. You're very welcome. Uh, I have a couple of short questions. Sure. Uh, You mentioned that, um, I believe you mentioned that there were still faculty meetings going on. Correct. And you'd attend those faculty meetings. Some people didn't have masks on, some, and, and yet seemed to be okay. My question has to do with the the intent or the content of those faculty meetings. Um, How much time, if any, in those faculty meetings was spent discussing the protocols for masking, et cetera, versus what protocols should be in place to compensate for the things you were seeing going wrong with children, with their learning being uh, uh, reduced or being impeded and some of the social issues. So my question is how much time were they spending trying to mitigate those coming up with protocols to mitigate the effects of the mass on the children's learning environment? Yeah, Um, I didn't, I would bring something up to try to mitigate and I was immediately shut down. So there was very little to none on mitigation and I would say there was probably one third of the meeting was spent on protocols, what we need to do, how we could be better. I even have like an email 
that was sent out by the executive by the education director. It was sent out to all the faculty. And she specifically named me in this email. And she says, for you, Cassandra, I would ask that you double up on your physical distancing and also supporting the parents who come in to support the class during transitions as well as in class time. So she, you know, so I was, I was really like um, put in the spotlight because of, which is, was a private thing for me with my medical exemption. And that, that was like, put out through the whole school. So uh, I just want to make sure I understand that they said you had to double up on your distancing. That's what they wanted me to do. So your distancing was six feet. You had to be 12 feet they away from the kids. They wanted me to do 12 feet. How many kids were in the classroom? Um, how many did I have that year? Approximately. I remember, tr I would say approximately 18. So would it be possible in a classroom to be 12 feet away from 18 children? No. I have one other question, and maybe it's just I didn't understand something about this. I, I thought you said that you weren't allowed to go into the lunchroom and have lunch with the staff? Correct. Did they eat their, their lunch with the mask on? <laughs> I wouldn't know because I wasn't allowed in the faculty room. <laughs> Thank you. That's all I've got. You're welcome. I have two questions. One short question. You are probably have heard, I have never seen it myself because I've been out of the university and school and so on for a long time. But I've heard that there's a lot of uh, issues in the American campus, but maybe also in some places in, in Canada about what the, the so-called safe space and microaggression. That is, people that are sensitive to opinions or, or behavior. And I'm trying to understand what that could represent in an environment, but with teenager or young adult, maybe this is something that can be, I don't know, managed somehow. But in a school with children like that and amongst adults, which are the faculty, would you... Would you compare what you've lived through uh, of something like microaggression? I don't know. I'm not sure how to answer that question. I, I know I felt, I felt segregated and I felt discriminated against. I felt, um, yeah, I, I just felt very isolated. So... I don't know about the microaggression piece. Sorry. How did you felt emotionally? Oh, emotionally, yeah, emotionally I was really I was really traumatized. I was really sad and I was thinking what am I going to do for work now? How am I going to make a living? Mm. You know, I can't go back into that environment. They won't even let me back into that environment. So I you know, I they made it very difficult for me. So so, yeah, so my whole, I went into this very anxious, stressful state of, you know, fight or flight and thinking, okay, I need to like boots in and just get moving and figuring out what I'm going to do. And that's where I was really grateful that I had um, this doctor that was helping me, the psychotherapist, because mm -hmm. she was really helpful to help me get through that stage. My other question, maybe you're not aware of that, but 
in Quebec, they, they actually conducted a very extensive study to look at the impact of these measures in school, mm-hmm. in the learning process and behavior of the children and so on. Are you yeah. aware of similar study in Nova Scotia? And I'm not aware of similar studies in Nova Scotia directly, but from some of my training um, in working with uh, healing, transdisciplinary healing education, that, you know, working with educating traumatized children, right, and seeing how trauma and these things um, not only have uh, mental health implications and psychotherapy indications for the children at at the time, and if it's not um, worked out immediately, it can turn into other illnesses and disease, right? But it also can have a delay in development in their um, in their development of their organs, in the development of uh, how they move and their growth. So there is a lot that can happen physiologically and psychologically with the children. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much, Cassandra. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Oh, I'm sorry. My apologies. Oh, sorry. Let me take that back for a moment. I'm sorry. Uh, I still appreciate your time, but we have one more question. Yes. Sorry. Hi, Cassandra. I just want to take it just a little bit bigger, broader. Who determined the protocols? Was it like external or was it the provincial health or was it just an internal within the private school system? We were told that they were getting their mandates from public health. That's what we were told at the faculty meetings. And the school had put together a small group of individuals, um, teachers and parents, that um, put together what they felt were the measures that and protocols that our school would be doing. So they were getting this public health from public health. They were getting whatever mandates or protocols, and then they would take that, and then they would implement it in a way for our school following those guidelines. That was my understanding. That's what we were told. Were you ever given a copy of those mandates from provincial health, or you just read about it in the media, that kind of thing? Um, I don't recall being given anything. Yeah, I don't recall being given anything. I just I just remember us being told this is what was happening. Yeah. It was and kind of like an agenda note, right? Yes. This is part of our agenda, but it didn't go into detail. Did you see any discrepancies with what was happening within your private school as compared to other schooling alternatives in Nova Scotia? I'm not from here, that's why I ask. Yeah. Um I wasn't sure what was happening in the public school system because I'm not part of that. I just knew what was happening in our private school. Um, and I didn't know too much about what was happening in the other school systems. I was just really involved with what we were doing. Okay. And then one final question. In terms of incident reporting, was there any reporting process within the school system for the hand sanitizer issue? Um no, there was no incident reporting for that. It was the parents coming back to say, my daughter has caustic burns from this overuse of sanitizer, and I don't want her using it anymore. So there would be no path to document um, what was happening with that child and taking that information. Sorry, I just lost my voice, I think. Taking that information to the public health authorities. Not that I'm aware of. Okay, thank you. There 
Is there one more question for us coming? No. Um, we do have an audience question for you, Cassandra, as well. The question is, thinking of air quality and our scent-free schools, did the hand sanitizer have any negative impact? As far as scent sensitivity? Yeah, uh, because I mean, usually I find that, and I'm going to presume that whoever's asking the question, are you talking about scented hand sanitizers? Because no, they, 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 were, they were both available, I believe, at the schools. Have a smell to them. Yeah, yeah. Um, in my class, personally, I didn't notice any scent sensitivities to the sanitizer, only the physical sensitivities of rash, the burns, things like that. Wonderful. I believe, I believe we've got all, answer, all questions answered now. So thank you once thank again you. very much, Cassandra. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this broadcast of the National Citizens' Inquiry. It's so important to get the testimonies of Canadians out there, so please share on all your channels and invite your friends and family to listen in. As always, you can head over to nationalcitizensinquiry.ca to sign our petition and find out more on how you can take personal responsibility. From the National Citizens' Inquiry, thank you. The world is watching.